0: The following message is entitled "Proven Faith, Fired Up Faith, Part 4. This message was given during the evening service on February nineteenth, two thousand twenty-three, at the East Side Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. Series number three, First Peter, as I've outlined it, verses six to nine. Let's follow in the text and refresh ourselves. First Peter 1, verses 6 to 9, In this you greatly rejoice. This refers to verses 3 to 5, the second series in this epistle. It's all about salvation. We rejoice in the merciful salvation of the Lord in verse 3, been born again, the heaven that we've obtained in verse 4, the protection we've gained in verse 5. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Various trials, the sundry trials, manifold trials, It's not referring in the context of this epistle, as we go further into the tunnel of 1 Peter, we're going to see this suffering is in reference to standing for truth, living for the Lord Jesus Christ in a godless world. It's not just generic trials, it's the trials of living for Christ. So that's the various trials that are being referred to, and you are now continuously being constantly distressed by trials, yet you rejoice. Not in the trials, not in the suffering, you rejoice in one's salvation. And this, verse 7, is a singular proof of true saving faith. So if I don't have joy in the midst of suffering while serving the Lord, I can't possibly have assurance. This is the whole theme of this, is that uh, what Peter is telling us is, stand firm in joy in the midst of suffering for the sake of Christ, and you will have great assurance. Proof. This is the test of your faith, verse 7. And this comes back to the basic issue, there are so many things that if I'm not following these fundamental issues of the Christian life, I can't have assurance of salvation. If, if I don't fulfill the Great Commission, this is basic. This is a huge thing I talked about this morning. Huge thing, if I'm not fulfilling the Great Commission, witnessing of Christ when I have opportunity and sharing the gospel, how can I possibly consider myself born again? I lose assurance. Second thing we talked about this morning in First Timothy was the fact that uh, this is a huge Mount Everest issue concerning serving in a church with one's gifts and not quitting. I don't have that enduring service going on where I know God's will for my life. I can't possibly have assurance. And here in First Peter one seven, this is a major issue. If I am not with joy, suffering by serving Christ and evangelizing, I have no proof of the faith. The proof is joy in the midst of suffering for Christ as a believer. Not generic trials, but directly related cause and effect to my proclaiming Christ outside the church and serving him in the church. This proven faith in verse 7 is more precious than gold, which is perishable. We looked at that extensively, that gold is perishable, proven faith is not. Gold can be melted down and it maintains its form, but it is perishable in it. This world is going to pass away. And then we looked at testing by fire and finished that up last time. And now we're going to come today in point number three at the bottom of your note sheet under the principles from Albert Barnes that we'll finish before this. But at the bottom of your note sheet on page, the front page, um, we're going to go to the issue of what does your proven faith really do? Verse 7 may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. Verse 8, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. What a passage! This is joyfully suffering for Christ. This is this series. We've seen proven faith, fired up faith, and what does it lead to? Tested by fire. Even though tested by fire, it goes right into the next phrase, may be found. So this is proven faith, fired up faith, part number four. Uh, In your note sheet, you can see then we've tracked down through Roman numerals one and two at the top, and letter A, joy while suffering for Christ, is the singular proof of saving faith in this text. Letter B, the nature of proven faith is what we're analyzing. Uh, three major points in verse 7 show us the nature of proven faith. It's more precious than gold, number one. Number two, proven faith will continuously be tested by fire. And number three, we'll get to at the bottom when we get to it. Since I wrapped up tested by fire uh, by itself, not connected to the rest of the verse, which we'll do tonight, I brought some Barnes principles. Albert Barnes was a great Bible believing commentator and preacher. Uh, many decades ago, and he recaps this verse 7 for us, and I gave you two of the statements that he gave last Sunday night at the end of the sermon. Number one and he notes, it is a desirable thing that a Christian's faith should be tried. We should desire this because if you want assurance, then you want to suffer for Christ and have joy. Assurance is one of the great desires of a believer. You should write this under point number one. Every believer should hunger for assurance of salvation more than anything. It is not secure. Assurance is not secure. Write that down. You know the difference between security and assurance. Security is your position. Assurance is a result of your life lived. Security, you can do nothing with that. When you're born again, you're saved. You're always saved. You can't lose your salvation. That's John 10 where Christ said, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they know me and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. That's security. So once you're saved, you never have to worry about a s- security. Assurance is confidence. It is confidence driven by godliness. Security is driven by conversion. Assurance is driven by godliness. Security is the result of salvation. Assurance is the result of sanctification. Not every believer has assur- assurance All true believers have security. Security is your position. It cannot be altered by whether you're backslidden or not. Assurance fluctuates up and down based on your walk with the Lord. Assurance is something we should desperately want. It should be in our top five list of things that we desire. What are some things that I would personally desire in my life? In that top five, not in any particular order. Well, I want a hunger for the Bible. That's a major Mount Everest desire that I want to see that shows that I'm saved. Number two, I want repentance. I want a heart that is truly repentant, not just robotic Vulcan, Star Trek, no emotion. Oh, I'm sorry, forgive me, Jesus. No, this is passion-driven repentance. Number two, I want wisdom. Um, This has to be asked for according to uh, Proverbs 3 and uh, Psalm 1. Every Christian should be asking for wisdom, the the God-given ability to apply the scripture to one's life. Uh, Number four, I desperately want God's will. Hunger for the word, repentance, wisdom, God's will. These are huge assurance-producing desires and goals. Every true believer should have these. Hunger for the word, repentance, wisdom, wanting God's will, and number five, right up there for me is I want consistent daily confidence that I'm a believer. How can believers live with doubts about their salvation? That's not supposed to be that way. We're supposed to be growing in faith and have assurance. What is assurance? Confidence that I'm saved and not a fake and not lost and going to hell. I want to be sure that I'm going to heaven and I don't want false assurance. I need true, accurate assurance. And the only way to get that is to test myself, not trust myself. You don't trust yourself for assurance. You test yourself. We're too prone to, if we truly are saved, to doubt that salvation when we shouldn't. And we're too prone, if we're not saved, to assume that we're saved when we shouldn't. It's assurance that is accurate. It's assurance that is a reward from the Holy Spirit, not an arrogant, false assurance that is driven by my own belief systems. So that's why, number one, we should desire to be tried so that we can see whether we have joy in the midst of suffering, which gives me assurance that I'm saved. And that's a major thing every Christian should hunger for. What do Christians talk about, though, by and large? Um, Family, friends, career, job, money, uh, things to do, places to go, fun. You don't hear Christians talking a lot about a hunger for the word, greater desire for repentance, praying passionately and daily for wisdom to apply the Bible accurately to my own life. You don't have Christians seeking with great passion to do the will of God or hungering at all costs. to have consistent assurance. Nothing is more terrifying than a true believer losing assurance of salvation. It isn't doubts, it's terror. It's called holy terror in Hebrews chapter 10. A rebel Christian who's truly saved enters into the realm of holy terror. They are living in an absolute shipwreck, spiritually, emotionally, and mentally. They can't possibly get any handle on whether if they die at this moment they're going to go to hell or not. They are terrified of hell. They know what hell is and it terrifies them. And they live in a state of terror because they don't have assurance. That is a serious consequence of chastisement from the Holy Spirit upon a person who's not living for Jesus Christ. Oh, how we should long for assurance. Therefore, Barnes said, it is a desirable thing to have your faith tested, to see if we are in the faith. Number two, Barnes said there in your note sheet, he said, God uses various methods in trying his people with an intent to test the value of their piety. Piety is an old word for godliness and to separate it from all impure mixtures. So, What we can write under number two is that suffering not only gives us assurance, it's a valuable thing, but it also helps to purify us. When we suffer for the faith in joy, we have confidence we're saved, and we live for eternity, and we see how important it is to be godly. In a persecuted environment, you don't want to be a carnal, backslidden Christian. You have no tools or resources to withstand persecution. If you're ignorant of the Bible and carnal, Let's take those five things that are the mount everest virtues of any believer and let's take their opposites hunger for the word boredom with the bible boredom is the opposite of hunger and uh, number two prayerless lack of repentance um hardened don't see my sin number three i am a moral fool if i don't pray for wisdom that's the opposite of wisdom number four Uh, Not wanting the will of God means I'm an outright unbeliever. That is so important that Christ said in Matthew 7, if you don't hunger for the will of God, you're not one of my sheep. And then number five, uh, living in an absolute distraught state of terror because you don't know whether you're saved or not. The problem is not lack of faith. The problem is lack of godliness. Lack of assurance is not lack of faith. It's lack of godliness. Okay. Okay. So God uses all sorts of various trials to test us by fire. That was Barnes' point number two we finished last Sunday night. Number three, fill in the blanks, new material. Barnes said, true faith will bear any trial applied to it as true gold will bear the actions of fire. True faith will bear any trial applied to it as true gold will bear the action of fire. Fire purifies gold. Fire of a true believer Purifies and strengthens faith. This is again a test. If my sufferings in my life cause me to turn from God, to turn from the faith, to give up church service, evangelism, Bible reading, if I live in cynicism and bitterness in my heart and disillusionment looking back over my life, that's a person who has no assurance of salvation. So when true faith is fired up, it withstands the test under number three. When true faith is fired up, it withstands the test. Not because Christians who are godly are superhumans, it's because they're walking in the Spirit, they're controlled by the Spirit, and they have a God-given enablement to withstand trials. Number four, true faith is imperishable by its very nature. You can't destroy true faith. We are secure. Assurance can be destroyed, but not security. True faith is imperishable by its very nature. No trial can destroy it. So when faith is destroyed by suffering, when a person says, I don't trust God anymore, I'm backsliding, I'm not coming to church anymore, I'm not reading my Bible anymore, that's perishable then. That faith is perishable. That's false faith. Can't we be weak? Can't we struggle at times? Of course we can. But then we go back to number two and the five great Mount Everest virtues of the godly Christian we repent, we feel guilty and we repent and we're restored. So testing by fire, the goal of the testing there in verse 7 is not to destroy the faith, it's to reveal whether it's real or not. Christian can't lose their faith. They give up faith and they never had it to begin with. Number five, all Christians should be willing to pass through trials then. Should be willing to pass through the fire of trials. What kind of trials? The trials of suffering for the faith. That's what's being talked about there. It's always the difficulties of loving the brethren in chapter 1, verse 22, the difficulties of witnessing in a harsh, godless world, those are the suffering issues that we should be looking for in our lives. I can't tell you as many times as I can from different directions the same thing. This is the true Christian life. All Christians should be willing to pass through trials. All right, so that finishes off Tested by Fire. come to number three in the second half of verse seven. Proven faith number three will result in the exaltation of Christ in the believer's life, lifting Christ up. It is exactly the opposite of the backslidden or fake believer. When trials overwhelm the backslidden believer, they lower Christ, they doubt Christ, they turn from Christ. Tested by fire faith, may be found a result. Here's the result of true proven faith that is fired up. It results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The godless believer says, why am I going through this? The godly believer says, all honor and glory to you for suffering. What a universe difference between those two mentalities. Whining, doubting, complaining over suffering. Glory be to God that I suffered for his name. This is so alien to so many believers today, they don't even comprehend how anyone could be this way. Under number three, this is the ultimate divine purpose behind suffering faith with joy. This is the ultimate purpose. This is really the capstone of this whole study here. It's not about you, it's not about me. The backside of your note sheet, we're going to study that more tonight when we get to it. But this is the ultimate divine purpose. To result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So under number three there at the bottom, ultimately then the testing of faith is not first to show us that we're saved, but to glorify God. This is an even higher purpose than to prove our faith. This is a crescendo going on here. This is a walking up a suffering hill. And it starts at the beginning of verse 7. and It says, so the proof of your faith, you're advancing. I have assurance. I have assurance. And as I advance up the godliness hill, I realize now that with assurance, proven faith, it's more valuable than gold. I don't love money and gold. I love assurance. Walking up the hill, I'm going to get continually fired up, tested for my faith. And that's a good thing. It will only purify me. And I arrive at the peak of Mount Everest here of suffering at the end of verse 7. I find the, the summit. I make it to the summit of the mountain of joyful suffering. And I'm found at the top tip of Mount Everest to be praising, glorifying, and honoring Jesus Christ all the way up to the revelation of Jesus Christ. It really is not about us. Everything in the Christian life, even our assurance, is to point towards Christ. Let's take this last part of this verse 7 and study it phrase by phrase. May be found. So tested by fire may be found. It's the, the subject of may be found is tested by fire. Even though tested by fire, what? Your proven faith. So it reads like this. Your proven faith, tested by fire, may be found. This is may be found then is the direct antecedent or cause of the may be found is tested by fire. But what's being tested by fire is the proven faith. So this is the priority. These are the top Peaks of verse 7. Proven faith, tested by fire, is found to result in the glorifying of God. Proven faith, tested by fire, results in this. The whole direction of this is away from ourselves. After your faith has been proven and you have assurance of salvation, the godly Christian moves away from themselves. Okay, And it works like this. All right, I see that, you, Lord, you're giving me joy, consistent joy while I'm suffering. I witnessed for you and I suffered for it. I'm suffering continuously, witnessing to family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, and I'm serving you and suffering for it in my Bible-believing church, yet I still have joy. This gives me assurance. I have joy in the midst of suffering. This is a miracle from you. This gives me assurance that the Spirit resides within me. Now, now that I have confidence, looking inward for assurance, now I take my eyes and I glorify you for this. Last part of verse 7. May be found. This is a passive, subjunctive ver- ver- verb. What does that mean? Herisco. What it means is found by God. He's the one doing the finding. We've proven that we have assurance at the beginning of the verse, and then the Lord looks at us and finds That the proving of the faith were found to give results here of praise and glory to the Lord. So God is the agent of finding. It's a passive verb. May be found by him. May be made to be found by God, in other words. We want God to approve us. You see, it's not just about our own personal assurance. Don't you want to stand up in heaven one day and God says to you, Well done, good and faithful slave. That's his finding looking at us. Well done to us. That's what's going on at the end of verse 7. The revelation of Jesus Christ. My life. I want my life found by Christ to result in praise, glory, and honor. That's what's going on here. We, through the Spirit's help and wisdom, prove the faith through suffering with joy. And this results in a life that is pleasing to our Savior, Jesus Christ. May be found to result. Letter B. Just a little preposition into. May be found unto or into. May be found unto praise. It is direction. Write that next to letter B. To result in. This is directional. So your proven faith is found to direct towards that life direct towards praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are falling off the grid right here at the end of verse 7. We are disappearing. We're not important. This is now a turning of the corner that the godly Christian is like John the Baptist. He must increase, I must decrease. This is, I have had the Spirit of God give me assurance that my faith is proven through suffering with joy. And now, as He finds me that my life is unto, my life is, through suffering with joy, a massive honoring and praise and glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We want our lives to shine to the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what this result is. It is direction towards praise and glory of Christ. So the goal, letter C, of all of this suffering with joy is not about us. The goal of all of this is God's glory. Letter C. The goal of all this is God's glory, not our own comfort or well-being. The goal of all of this, the goal of the godly life is the glory of God, not our comfort and well-being. There's none of that in the Bible. These whole perverted things we're going to now explore for the rest of the sermon under letter C, points one, two, three, and 4. The whole idea of this comforted, it's all about me type of Christianity. That's not in the Bible at all. Anything that Christ does for us spiritually is meant to get us to point our eyes to Jesus Christ and forget about ourselves. That's what this is all about. So the goal of all this is God's glory, not our own comfort or well-being. It says there, to result in praise and glory and honor. Now, look at that phrase, to result in praise and glory and honor. Theologians look at that and they get stumped. It's really quite odd. I've got more than a few commentators upstairs that say, well, he doesn't really tell us who's being praised and gloried and honored there. It just says, results in praise, glory, and honor. Of who? That's the deep theological question. Of who? I ripped through every one of my commentators, commentaries upstairs on this. I I, I just scratched my head. I said, really, this is a hard one? There's only two options here. May be found to result unto the praise, glory, and honor. It doesn't say of Jesus Christ there. Notice it doesn't say that. It says at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the object of this praise, glory, and honor is left out. You see that in verse seven. It just says praise, glory, and honor. It Doesn't say of who. There's only two options. This is praise and glory on, and honor of ourselves or of Christ. Some commentators say that this means that our proven faith is found out to be genuine and thus our faith is to be praised. And that we will receive, as one commentator said, we will receive the glory and honor and commendation of our eternal judge in heaven. So these commentators are saying, we're the ones to get the praise and the glory and the honor. Wow, all that proves to me is you can be spiritually a fool and have multiple theological doctoral degrees. But that's what they say. Well, I don't think any of us need to have a doctoral degree to know where the praise and the glory and the honor lies. Can you find anywhere in the Bible, Old or New Testament, where God calls us to praise, honor, and glory ourselves? Well, well, why did Peter and the Holy Spirit leave out the object? Why didn't it say of the Lord, praise and glory and honor of the Lord? Really? I think the infinite genius of the Spirit of God is, we should already know the answer to this. No godly Christian praises themselves. We were listening to one of the speakers that has replaced MacArthur today, and before I fell asleep, he said that Moses, he was analyzing Moses' life, Wherefore I entered into Never Neverland. Um and he said, Moses is one of the most humble people who ever walked the earth. You, you know what humble means, right? It's it's lowering yourself. The Greek word in Philippians for humility is a big, huge multisyllabic word. It's huge, one of those huge words in Greek. Just means a bank of a river getting dry and lowering. It's like I mentioned Lake Mead, I think it was last Sunday or the Sunday before. That's the largest man-made water reservoir in the world that feeds the Hoover Dam. And there's a 10-foot sign on the banks of Lake Mead. And in the top of the 10-foot sign, it says this is where in 2008 the water level was, <laughs> above that sign. And so now you see the bathtub rings all around the rock formations where the water is dropped. That's what humility is. It is a lowering of the water. Is the lowering of yourself. What is praise, glory, and honor? That's exaltation. That's the raising up. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, so they're doing that in heaven. But they should really be patting themselves on the back, right? <laughs> That's unbelievable. If they're doing that in heaven in perfection... So, humility is a lowering of ourselves. That's what John the Baptist did, right? This is not difficult. The object of the praise and the glory and honor is Christ. Okay? Simple as that. It is not praise from the Father towards us, it is us praising and glorying God. For what? That He has given us assurance. That he's preserved us through suffering. That we have joy in the midst of conflict. This is great praise and glory. It's not about me. I'm a worthless nothing. If anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, we don't praise ourselves and glorify ourselves. It just shows you how proud and corrupt some of these theologians are. So, the application here is fourfold. Number one in your note sheet. It's not about us. It is not about us. Us, are we clear on that? Ernest T. Bass. Anyone remember him from Andy Griffith show? Goes on this date in this episode, and I guess this old lady has this dance club, and so all these rejects show up at this dance club to meet men and women, and so Andy and Barney get them all dressed up and shaved, and the back of his neck is shaved, and he's walking in there, and he meets this girl, so they go out on the porch. And one of Ernest T. Bass's famous lines, she goes, well, what do we want to talk about? And he says this, let's talk about me. You want to know about me? I don't spill at the table, I don't throw food, and I try not to talk through my nose. Ernest T. Bass was a narcissistic, self-centered moron. I don't spill at the table, I don't throw food, and I don't talk through my nose. Let's talk about me. You know how sad it is how many professed believers are like Ernest T. Bass? So in your note sheet, it's simply not about us. The end of verse 7 is telling us it's not about us. What? Answer this question. Write it down. Here's the question. What is not about us? That's the question next to my statement there. It simply is not about us. Write down the question. What is not about us? Here's the answer. Everything! What is not about us? Everything. Let's make it positive or proactive. What is about us? Nothing. There's a cause and effect on humility. The less humble you are and the more proud you are, the more you get offended by other people. Okay, So as pride grows in the body of Christ, more and more things offend us. We get irritated at more and more things. Humility as that dumps us down on the low, dry banks of nothingness and we don't deserve anything. That kills critical attitudes in the church. We're nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's all about God. That's why this verse is taking us away now From yes, you need to have assurance of your salvation. Do you have that? Yes, joy in the midst of suffering. Now, dump yourself. It's not about you. God didn't make you assured of your salvation so you could pat yourself on your back. I know, I'm saved. It was to direct you to the end of the verse. A theocentric Christianity that is not about you and I. Romans 12. Go over there. We don't exalt ourselves, we don't love ourselves, we don't raise ourselves up. Verse 1, therefore I urge you, brethren, true believers, Romans 12, 1, by the mercies of God, that's the only reason you're a brother in Christ or sister in Christ is by God's mercy. You and I are to present our bodies, our lives, our physical and spiritual lives as a living and holy sacrifice which is acceptable to God. The only life that is worth living that God accepts, according to verse 1, is a holy life. sacrifice this is your spiritual service of worship that verse is so foundational to service in a local church service is only to be by those that are alive spiritually believers it is to be holy and it is to be sacrificial only that is acceptable by God unbelievers who serve are not acceptable unholy believers who serve are not acceptable convenient serving if I've got the time it's not sacrificial is unacceptable now, in the context of righteous service, verse 2 and do not be conformed to this world. Don't, with a mask on your face, try to look, act, and talk like unbelievers. You'll be outed as a carnal believer just from that one. How many Christians know more about the culture, know more about Hollywood, the actors, the movies, the latest styles and clothing, the latest hairstyles? They know more about that, but then when you take the Christian to the Bible, they can't, they're lost. That's a direct violation of verse 2. You're not to be conformed to this world. You're not to look like the world. You're to be transformed internally by the renewing of your mind. That is the key. That's even more important than service. Because you can serve outwardly in verse 1 and have a non-transformed mind. The first place a Christian has to do when they get right with God is look at the mind. You want your mind renewed. Verse 2, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The will of God then fundamentally and essentially is a mind renewed in holiness and purity. That's what renewal means. Come more like Christ. Verse three, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, everyone among you, not to think highly of himself. The word more is not in the Greek. Not to think highly. Of himself, One word in the Greek, not to be high-minded about himself, not to exalt self. Contrary to how he ought to think. It's not more than he ought to think. That's a terrible translation. The word more and than aren't even in the Greek. It makes it sound like, as somebody confronted me on this years ago, hey, you know, you're wrong when you say that we shouldn't think highly of ourselves. The Bible tells us we should think highly of ourselves, just not more highly than we ought to quoting the English, having no clue what this verse is saying. More and than are not there. This reads like this, you ought not to think highly of yourself contrary to how you ought to think. You don't have to have any high-mindedness. Huper franeo, a raised-up mind. It's all about self. One of the great sins of our culture is selfies. Some have died from taking selfies along the edge of a cliff, so obsessed in taking their own picture, they fall backwards off cliffs and die. You can go on YouTube tonight if you're bored. Look up all the people who died falling off cliffs taking selfies. There's a positive and fun entertainment opportunity for you this evening on a Sunday night. Selfies. What narcissism. It is so much about me. I have to take pictures of myself and send them to other people. Think about that. As a Christian... When we're not even to be thinking about ourselves? look Contrary to how you ought to think, you shouldn't even be thinking about yourself. What should you be thinking about in verse 3? To have sound judgment. Growing in faith. Wow. And commentators are scratching their heads. Go back to 1 Peter 1.7. Scratching their heads over, well, who's getting the praise and the honor and the glory here? Well, I think, I think it's where to praise and honor and glorify ourselves. How wicked is that? The more you grow, the less you should be thinking about yourself. And I i wonder why these Hollywood actors and actresses have to keep stretching their faces as they get into their 60s, 70s, and 80s. Start looking like Chinese. Desperate because they worship themselves. Desperate to retain youth. Christians who get depressed when they hit 30 and then really get depressed when they hit 40 then just give up into hopelessness when they hit 50. We're worthless. God took a worthless piece of dirt and clay, a depraved human, and converted it. And then he tests us. See whether we're valuable or worthless metal, He heats us up with trials to make us pure. Who gets the responsibility for all of that? And does God want to do that so we can smile on a selfie? What self-worship is that? Everything in social media for a born-again Christian should be about the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. We deserved hell. Only Christ can turn dirt into gold. Makeup can't do that. Here then, one commentator says, when we give such praise to God, when we give such praise to God, we are really acting like a godly believer, giving him the glory for everything. Unless a believer has this as his motivation for every aspect of his Christian life, and faith. He certainly then will not take any comfort in the fact that he's suffering for Christ. He won't. And this is when we get into the body of Christ. I don't care if you insult me. I don't care what injustices are done to me in a local church. I'm nothing. I really believe that. I'm nothing. Is that how we believe? Or is it all about our rights? I shouldn't have this done to me. We're far from this. The direction to the end of verse 7 is away from us. God, frankly, is not wanting us to praise ourselves. Our Christian lives, write it down under, it's simply not about us. Our Christian lives are simply and essentially not about us. We suffer with joy to honor our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's about him. Everything about your Christian life is to be about him. Dump anything in your Christian life that is feeding self. Dump anything in your Christian life that is exalting yourself, making you the center of your universe. Actions, words, attitudes, entertainments, it all has to be dumped if it's feeding self. Are you willing to do that? Because a true believer who has been found, tested by fire, will be doing this. Next Sunday night, we'll look at number two. American evangelicalism will have nothing to do with this. And the real test that Christians are into themselves and not Jesus Christ is number three, absolutely no thrill with heaven. There's a major reason why Christians don't talk about heaven, and we'll get to it next Sunday night. I wonder if any of you can figure it out. And we'll talk about that next time. Why Christians who are selfish never talk about heaven. There's a real cause and effect to that. And then number four, next Sunday night, we're going to see. This is why self-centered Christians. Little teaser here, number four, they avoid suffering at all costs. They avoid suffering. It only makes sense if it's all about me, and not about dying for Jesus Christ and carrying up a cross and expending my life for others, for the lost, and for Jesus Christ. If it's not about that, and it's about self-preservation and self-obsession, then why would I ever want to suffer? Because self doesn't want to suffer. The real tell that somebody is selfish, if you want to know from the question I asked you at the beginning, the real tell that someone is a selfish Christian is an obsession to quit under the hand of suffering. That's the tell. will talk about this next Sunday night. Thank you, Father, for your word. Slay the dragon, Lord. We're fire-breathing dragons of selfishness. Down with us. Up with you. Everything, even assurance of salvation, is meant to glorify you. And when we get to heaven... It is the place that no selfish Christian really wants to go. Other than it's the place where hell isn't. A selfish Christian really is not looking forward to heaven at all. Isn't that tragic, Lord? You save us from hell, and there's so many Christians that really aren't looking forward to it. And the reason is obvious. Why Christians who are selfish aren't looking forward to heaven. They don't talk about it, they don't think about it, they don't live for it. They don't hope for it. They don't long for it. There's a reason for that. Help us to meditate on this this week. Do we really long for heaven? If not, we're selfish. Selfish Christians don't want to go to heaven. and Selfish Christians know why they don't want to go to heaven. It's very simple. Every selfish Christian knows why they have no great hunger for heaven. They know why. It's a godly Christian that might scratch their head and wonder, why would any Christian not want to go to heaven? Selfish Christians could tell us all the reason why they don't want to go to heaven, why they don't think about it, don't care about it, don't long for it. It's so simple. The answer is, Lord, because heaven is where self forever is annihilated. And hmm. Why would a selfish Christian want to go to heaven where they're no longer the center of the universe? Hmm. Father, may we peruse these things, meditate, be convicted, and live more for you and less for ourselves this week. In Jesus' name, amen.